Yes, our first reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Almighty God, uh, as we come now to your word and to consider your word, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit, just like the Apostle Paul prayed um, that we would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in our inner being, just like uh, the angel told Mary that the Holy Spirit would um, would work within her and would uh, do a miraculous thing. So we ask you by your Holy Spirit to do a miraculous thing in us and allow us uh, to hear your word, to that you would uh, inscribe your word upon our hearts, that you would uh, transform us, uh, and that above all, you would make us uh, to be a home for Jesus Christ. Uh, grant this, Father, for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, Really good to see you. Please turn back to page seven. Uh, we are wrapping up Advent today. As Clint said, uh, the word Advent means uh, a long anticipated arrival. And both our readings are going to help us wrap up Advent, but particularly uh, the Ephesians reading is going to help us do that. So please take a look at it. It's a prayer. Um, it's the prayer of the Apostle Paul. And what I want to show you today this may sound a, a little bit odd, but what I want to show you today is that the main point in Paul's prayer is also the main point God had in creating everything. And that same main point is the main point of Advent. And if all of that's true, that it needs to be the main point of our lives. Now, I realize that may sound a little obscure and maybe a little bit audacious. Uh, the main point of Paul's prayer is also the main point that God had in creating the universe, uh, is also the main point of Advent, and therefore it needs to be the main point of our lives. Okay, what am I talking about? Well, if you look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians, you can sum up the entire prayer or the main point of the prayer in a little tiny sentence with really massive implications, cosmic implications. And here it is. Paul's prayer teaches us that Jesus Christ came or advented in order to make us his home. Jesus came, Jesus advented in order, verse uh, 17, in order to dwell within us. And what I want to show you today is that that's the main point of Paul's prayer, but I also want to show you that that was God's objective in creating the world. And I also want to show you that that's God's objective in the whole story of Advent. And if all of that's true, then it needs to be the main central purpose of our lives. And if all of that's still confusing, that's fine. But come with me into the reading. First of all, take a look at Paul's prayer. 
Now, um, let me set up the context or remind you of the context. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing from Rome. He's imprisoned in Rome, and he's writing to a group of churches around the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And this prayer, this reading that we have, is right in the middle of the letter. A and that matters because this prayer is a little bit like a hinge within the whole letter. So before this prayer, we've got three chapters that we've been talking about over the last several months. And in these three first chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been describing Christian doctrine. Uh, he's been teaching us all about uh, who God is and what Jesus has accomplished and how that changes everything and how that creates a new community um, that is powerful and profound. Basically, the first three chapters of Ephesians is an overview of Christian doctrine, Christian theology. But then after this prayer, there are three more chapters and everything changes after this prayer because Paul switches kind of to ethics. And what I mean by that is that Paul gives us a truckload of commands. He's telling us how Christians should act. If all of this doctrine is true in the first half of Ephesians, then the second half of Ephesians tells us, well, what do we do about it? Now, in between doctrine and ethics, is this prayer, and it's like the hinge. All the doctrine that's come in the first three chapters leads up to this prayer. That's why in verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. He's praying this prayer because of everything he's been talking about in, in the previous three chapters. But then all of the ethics that come in the next three chapters flow out of this prayer. Because unless God answers this prayer, obeying him, will be impossible. This prayer is the hinge or the center point of the whole letter. And if you miss this prayer, then the whole of the Christian life falls apart. But now, not only is this prayer the centerpiece of the letter, zoom in right to the center of the prayer itself. Verse 17, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, mark the word dwell. It's a very specific word that, the Paul, that Paul uses. Um, and the word dwell here in the original means to settle down and live someplace permanently. So if you rent your apartment uh, month to month and you don't have a lease, then you might be living there, you might be staying there, but you're not dwelling there permanently in the way that this word implies. But on the other hand, if your family has lived in the same house for five generations and it's just been handed down from one generation to the other and you're planning on handing it down to, the, to your next generation, then you live in that place in the, just like Paul says, you dwell in that place. It's a permanent home. Now, Paul's saying that Christ or Paul's praying and asking that Christ would take a bit permanent, not temporary, but permanent residence within our hearts. Now, what does that image imply? Well, a thousand things, but at least it implies this. A Christian is supposed to have a conscious sense of Jesus's nearness and love and presence so that knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and enjoying Jesus just animates all of life. Jesus isn't just a, a far distant historical teacher that gives us good coaching for our life. No, rather Jesus dwells within us and that love with him animates everything about us. That's the center of this prayer. But now let me show you a little bit more. 
In order for that to happen, in order for Christ to make a permanent home within us, look at verse 16. The Holy Spirit must strengthen us. Then that leads to verse 17, Christ taking up residence. And the result is that we are captivated by Christ's love and we grow up into the fullness of God in verses 18 and 19. Now, what I want you to see is that there's a pattern here. Stay with me. There's a pattern. The spirit works. Then Christ dwells within us, number two. And number three, we grow up toward God, animated and driven by his love. Note those three marks. Okay, that's Paul's prayer. But let me back up now and show you that that was God's plan from the very beginning of the world. In your mind, go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapters one and two. Now, Genesis is the story where God creates the whole world in one week. And, and what's important to note here is that the book of Genesis and the story of creation is, it's less focused on scientific questions like how, what were the mechanisms of, of the development of the world and when did that occur? It's less focused on that question and it's way more focused on the deep questions of why, what's the meaning of it all, and who, who's behind it all. That's the focus of Genesis. And when you look at the story of Genesis, guess what we learn? You find a very similar pattern to Paul's prayer. The spirit does something miraculous, which results in a dwelling place for God and God's people. And the result is that humanity is supposed to grow up towards God, driven by his love. So Genesis chapter one, verse two, the opening scene you see the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God hovering over the earth. But the problem is the earth is uninhabitable. It says it's empty or it's void. And so the Holy Spirit hovering over an uninhabitable world gets to work and God organizes the world. And over the course of six days, God reshapes the world so that it becomes a home. And it becomes a home where God's people, humanity and God can rest together. And they were supposed to rest or live together permanently. That's chapter one. Chapter two of Genesis gets more specific. God creates a special part of the world called the Garden of Eden. You've probably heard of it. And the point of the Garden of Eden is that this was to be a particular place where God and humanity can live together, can dwell together permanently so that humanity can grow up ever closer to God, always being drawn and animated by God's love. Do you see the pattern? The Holy Spirit does something miraculous. The result is that God and God's people dwell together permanently. At least that's the plan. And the result is that humanity can grow up ever closer to God, drawn along by his love. Now, what I'm trying to show you is that from the very beginning, God created the world so that God and God's people could live together permanently. Now, keep all that in your mind, and you can see why sin is such a tragedy. What? That was an abrupt shift. Jim, why are you talking about sin? Well, sin, friends, deconstructs creation. What do I mean by that? Well, remember God's pattern in creation. The spirit does something miraculous, which builds a dwelling place for God and God's people, resulting in humanity uh, drawn ever closer to God because of God's love. 
Well, sin deconstructs that pattern in reverse order. Let me explain. The story of Adam and Eve and all humanity. Um, what happens is we're, Adam and Eve are living in that relationship of love with God, growing closer to them, but then, but to him, but then humanity, Adam and Eve, they eat the apple, but the eating the apple or the fruit or whatever it was, isn't just a mistake. It, it's not just a, oops, they stumbled. It's a declaration of independence. They're saying, no, I don't want to be drawn ever closer to God, drawn by his love. Rather, I want to fend for myself. Uh, it's so to speak, I want a divorce, God. So the, the last bit is canceled. The relation, the loving relationship, God drawing us ever closer to him, sin cancels that. But sin also destroys the dwelling place between God and humanity. Sin shatters Eden. Sin destroys this place, this unique place in the world where God and humanity were meant to dwell together. And because of that, sin has made humanity homeless in a deep and profound way. And lastly, Adam and Eve are ejected from the presence of God. They're quarantined from God's spirit. Sin cancels God's purpose for creation by undermining it in reverse order of the pattern that God created it in. Now, one of the things that this means is that if you look at the human soul, if you look in your own soul, one of the things you'll find is that hu the human soul is deeply homeless. I don't mean that we're physically homeless necessarily, but here's what I mean. A, a really good home should at least give you three things. It should help you with your identity. It should help you feel belonging and it should give you security. Um, a good home uh, helps you know who you are. It gives you a sense of identity. A good home should surround you with loving relationships so that you feel a sense of belonging. A good home should make provision for your future, so it should give you a sense of security. But every human heart, even when we come from good families, has a nagging sense. Can't you see this in your heart? Every human heart has a nagging sense that we don't really know who we are. We're not sure who we are. And we don't really know where we, where we belong, and we're afraid we don't belong. And we don't really know if everything's going to be okay in the future, and we're always worried about it. And the reason we feel deeply homeless is that we were designed for a better home than any family or any community in this world can give us. We were made to be at home with God. But sin shattered Eden. Sin blew up our home and we've been homeless ever since. And that's why no matter how hard we try to self-construct an identity, no matter how we hard we try to self-construct a sense of belonging, no matter how hard we try to self-construct a sense of security, it never quite works. It's always a little bit beyond our fingers. And very often that very attempt to self-create an identity, a belonging, a sense of security, that very attempt to self-create those things ends up uh, deepening our sin and shatters our home yet further. Now I'm saying this because it helps explain why we need Advent. Turn over to the gospel reading. Because the point of Advent is that God wants to make his home with us again. And all of that happened in a really odd way. That's the reading. So you got to imagine Mary. She's a teenage girl. She's just been visited by the angel Gabriel. And he says, you're going to have a child. Of course, Mary's a virgin. And she points out to the angel that that creates a certain awkwardness and it's a bit surprising. She says, wait, how can this be? Because 
I'm a virgin. And, and the angel knows that this is odd. And in verse 35, the angel describes how this is going to happen and watch for the pattern that we've already seen. Verse 35, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Does that sound familiar? And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, remember the pattern. The Spirit works, creating a home where God and humanity can dwell together. That's what God was doing when he came to Mary. The Holy Spirit is kind of creating within Mary a new Eden. Now, Mary's womb was a, a temporary Eden, right? Um, she's not going to be God's permanent dwelling place. But Mary's womb, this temporary Eden, proves that God, God's resolve, that sin is not going to shatter Eden forever, that his purpose to dwell with his people is going to stand despite our sin. And you can get a little hint about the permanent plan in verse 33. Take a look at verse 33. The angel says that Christ's kingdom will have no end. Now, Jesus, Mary's son, the angel says is going to have, is going to reign over a kingdom that's not going to be shattered by sin. Eden was shattered by sin, but this kingdom belonging to Jesus Christ is going, is not going to be shattered by sin. Rather, it's going to triumph over sin. And therefore, the implication is, is that if you're a citizen of this new kingdom that Jesus will reign over, then if you're inside that kingdom, you will ever grow closer to God through eternity, animated by God's love. What's the point of Advent? It's the same point that God had when he created everything. And it's the same point that Paul prays for in his prayer. God advents or comes among us in order to make his home within us. Now, if that's the point of Advent, and that's the point of creation, and if that's the point of Paul's prayer, then, Emmanuel, it must become the point of our lives as well. And that brings us back to Ephesians and the precious gift of this prayer, because the apostle Paul is asking God to reverse sin. He's asking God to recreate within our hearts a new Eden, or better to recreate our hearts into a new Eden. Paul's asking God to give us something of the same privilege he gave Mary. It's different, but it's something of the same privilege. And that explains why in verse 17, Paul asks, for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must do a miracle. And pause here for a second. Emmanuel, do you realize that to be a real Christian requires a miracle of God within our hearts? Do you realize that? This is really important because according to the Bible, you can be like formally religious without any miracle within the heart. Like, for instance, you can decide um, that it's a super good idea to try to comply with re religious rules and, like, live a really uh, uh, moral, ethical life. Or you can decide to uh, agree mentally, cognitively with a lot of Christian doctrine. But you can do both of those things. You can resolve to do both of those things without any transforming miracle happening within your heart. But neither of those things add up to being a real Christian. To be a real Christian includes those things, but it goes beyond those things. To be a real Christian requires God's Holy Spirit to hover over the chaotic sin of your soul and my soul. 
To be a real Christian requires that the spirit of God would hover over our soul and then work a miracle within us, just as profound as the miracle the spirit did when the, when God created the world. And it's important, Emmanuel, that we feel the magnitude of the miracle that our heart requires. Because until we feel within ourselves that we need God to do a miracle of transformation within us, until we feel that, we will never pray this prayer. And we will never really be a real Christian. It begins with a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But then the pattern continues. Paul prays that the Spirit will strengthen us with power so that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. That's the second part of the pattern, remember? That's the permanent dwelling where we become a home for Christ for eternity. And like I said before, part of that means that we gain a conscious sense of Christ's presence and care and grace and love. And that's how God begins to destroy the homelessness of sin. Because when Jesus dwells in our hearts through faith, he gives us identity and he gives us belonging and he gives us security. He gives us identity because he shares his identity with us as the child of God so that we no longer look to ourselves to create our identity or to discover our identity. We look to Jesus Christ. All our identity questions begin with who is Jesus and what has he done for me? But then he also gives us a sense of belonging because we get to belong to the family of God and our lives are animated by the love of our father in heaven. And he gives us security because Jesus promises to never leave us or forsake us, even when we suffer. And Emmanuel, I promise we are all of us going to suffer. But even when we suffer, we can know that just like Jesus' suffering led ultimately to his glory, so he will make sure that our suffering will contribute to our eternal glory with him as well. We have security. See, Emmanuel, you and I were made to find our home only in Jesus Christ. And the restlessness that we feel is a gift because God is driving us back to Christ. Or maybe it's better for me to say it this way. It's not just that we are to find our home in Christ. It's that Christ is to find his home in us. Now look back at the reading. Do you see how it is that we become a home for Christ? Look at verse 17. It says that Christ must dwell in us through faith alone. Now, if you want to grasp what real faith is, look at Mary. Flip over to, the, to Mary's story. The angel tells her that she's going to have a child, despite the fact that she's a virgin. And Mary responds with true faith. Verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Pause. Emmanuel, mark that. Like underline it in your Bible, because that is real faith. What do I mean? There's three things happening in Mary's faith that are signs of real and authentic faith. When Mary says, let it be to me as you have said, she implies three things. First, she implies quite obviously that she believes the message of the angel. Um, when she says, may it be to me, as you have said, she literally thought that what the angel was saying was going to happen is in fact going to happen. She, number one, believed the message. But then secondly, she also implied that she consented to the plan. It's not just that she believed what the angel was saying and that it was true, but she also was saying, count me in. 
I consent to this plan. She believed the message. She consented to the plan. And thirdly, it, all of that implied obedience. When she said, count me into this plan, she was also implicitly signing up for a lifetime of following out the implications of that plan, even if it caused suffering. And it did. And it always does. Now, that's real faith. Belief joined it to consent, which leads to obedience. And that's the sort of faith that we need for Christ to dwell in our hearts. Now, I want to ask you, Emmanuel, do you have that faith? First of all, do you believe the message of Jesus? Do you believe it's true? Then secondly, do you consent to the plan? Do you know that you need to be saved by Jesus and that only Christ can save you? And have you said, and do you say, yes, Jesus, I know I need you to save me and I consent to your plan to save me. And then thirdly, does that consent lead you to a grateful obedience to the commands of Jesus? And if you look at your heart and you're like, I'm not mm, one of the three or all of the three or is missing, then friends, what you do, you don't just close your eyes, grit your teeth and go, I'm going to faith myself into faith. No, you need the Holy Spirit to do that recreating work in your heart. You need the Spirit to strengthen you with power in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Only God can do this work within you. Therefore, Emmanuel, ask for it. Seek it. Make it the main business of your life to ask God to recreate your heart so that you can have a faith like Mary had. Because without that faith, we're going to remain homeless. And we'll remain homeless in this life and more tragically, we will be homeless in the life to come. And that is a tragedy beyond our imagining. But on the other hand, part of why we need to make all of this the main business of our life is that when the Holy Spirit strengthens us with power so that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, the result is that we spend all of eternity growing towards God, animated and drawn along by his love. That's what verse 18 is about. Look at it so that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The filled with all the fullness of God and it means filled to the measure of all of God's fullness. What? What's God's fullness? Well, short version is this. God's fullness is his infinite goodness joined with his infinite glory. And it will take an infinite amount of time for us to fully enjoy his infinite goodness and glory. And therefore all of eternity is packed in to verses 18 and 19. But it starts now and it starts with two key habits. First, we must be committed to the church. And second, we've got to keep our eyes on Christ's cross. First, we've got to be committed to the church. Verse 18, do you see the, 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 the phrase, with all the saints? Friends, this is one of the big themes of Ephesians. The Christian life is not a DIY project, okay? You can't do it alone. Um, I hope this doesn't offend you. You are not sufficient to do Christianity by yourself. Neither am I. We're not designed to be. And Christians only grow when they grow together. And that's why the church is not optional. Now, I know I'm talking to a bunch of people who just called into church, okay? So, but 
Remember this, the church isn't just something you watch from afar. Church is a community where you are to be known and you are to know others and help each other grow up into Christ. And that's part of how Jesus gives us belonging. And look now where the saints are all looking. (laughs) Paul says, with all the saints, we get to see the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. The gaze of the church, all of us together, must always be at the cross of Christ. Wait, Jim, why are you talking about the cross of Christ? Paul doesn't mention the cross of Christ there. Yeah, but he kind of does. Because the cross of Christ is always the epicenter of Christ's love. You cannot make a home for yourself for Christ. It's the most important thing in your life to become a home for Christ. And yet you can't do it and I can't do it. Neither of us can do it. But just like sin shatters Eden and makes us homeless, so the cross of Christ, his love outpoured for us, the cross of Christ shatters sin. And when you look at Christ's love displayed on the cross, and when you receive that love as forgiveness right into your deepest shame, and then when you see Jesus Christ rising from the dead for you and for your salvation, then Jesus rebuilds Eden within your soul. And when Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, then it allows all the saints together to look towards God always looking at him through the cross. And as we rely on the cross, moment by moment and breath by breath, we are drawn ever closer into Christ's love. And we get to see how Christ's love is always getting bigger and bigger, or rather our view of it is getting bigger and bigger throughout all of eternity. And that's how God will allure us and draw us ever closer to him throughout the ages, but starting now. So Emmanuel, we're wrapping up Advent, heading into Christmas. And what I wanna tell you is simply this, recalibrate the main purpose of your life towards Christ's Advent. He came to make you his home and nothing is more important than that. It was God's purpose for all of creation from the beginning. It's Paul's purpose in this prayer. It's the animating center of real Christianity and of all Christian growth. So make it your prayer and make it the main business of your life. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.